Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you're visiting this morning, we're really glad to have you. We are studying through the, the Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, finding that God is not just speaking to the church in Corinth there in the first century, He's speaking to us. And uh, a couple weeks ago when we left off before uh, Easter, we, uh, we made it up to verse 4 in chapter 3. Today we're going to look at chap- verses 5 through 17. But since it's been a few weeks, and some of you may have not been here, let me set the context just with the couple verses leading into the text today, verses 3 and 4. And they're there on the screen, or uh, if you have a Bible in front of you or on your phone, I encourage you to look at it. This is the context of what he's about to say. Paul writes, Since there is still jealousy and dissension among you, are you not carnal? Are you not fleshly? Are you not behaving like unregenerate, like unsaved people? For whenever someone says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not carnal? Now imagine you were a member of a church that received a letter like this from the pastor who founded the church who's been away for a while, and now he writes to you based on what he's heard, and he's expressing his concern, and he uses this word, you are are acting carnal, you are acting fleshly, you are acting in many ways like you are unsaved people. Well, this, this letter could speak to any church today. This letter is not just for Corinth. This, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is, is for all of us. And in the specifics of this situation, one of the ways that they were in Corinth behaving carnally was by forming factions around their preferred teachers. That's the, I follow Paul and I follow Apollos. Now, we've touched on that before, but I want to go a step further today. What what does that look like today? What What does that kind of carnal fleshly behavior look like in the evangelical church culture today? In other words, what is today's equivalent of I follow Paul or I follow Apollos. Let me offer a few of my thoughts. I've given some terms to this, but, but I think one of the ways it looks today is what I would call pastor comparison. You know, and, and none of us probably would be so direct and so bold as to say to someone in another church, you know, our pastor's better than your pastor, sounding like, you know, elementary school kids. But don't we sometimes do that? Don't we sometimes engage in that? Or aren't we sometimes on the receiving end of that with people at other churches? Where we may not say that directly, but still we're making comparisons. We're making comparisons about how, how good or, or, or poor a speaker, a pastor is as a speaker, uh, maybe his age, maybe, maybe his, his appearance. And we play that game in very, very subtle, socially appropriate ways. Pastor comparison is a way that we engage in this kind of factionalism. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. Another is pastor envy. You know the meaning of envy? Envy is those feelings of unhappiness, those feelings of discontent at the blessing of others, at the success of others. And maybe you look at other churches or you're interacting with friends who are in other churches, and you hear about their pastor, and you hear about what's happening because of his preaching ministry, and how that church seems to be just growing as a result of his ministry. And rather than feeling glad for them, rather than feeling happy for them, you, you have these feelings of discontent. You have these feelings of unhappiness that they are being blessed, and you may feel you are not. 
That's pastor envy. And then there's what I would call pastor following. That is when people attend a church only because of the man who's in the pulpit. They're not active in anything else. Their connection to the church is whether they like that man who's speaking. If he's not there on a Sunday, they don't want to be there. If he goes to another church or leaves the church, so do they. Pastor following. Those are all current 21st century ways of engaging in the I follow Paul, I follow Apollos kind of factionalism. You know, and our technology has enabled us to take this kind of carnal factious behavior to a whole new level. I mean, I assume almost everybody or everybody in here has access to the internet. You can hear and watch all kinds of good preaching from pastors all across the nation, from pastors all across the, the world. You can, you can listen to podcasts. Of course, you can listen on the radio. Of course, you can watch TV. You can see pastors, great preachers that you would never have personal access to if you stayed within the Memphis area here. And while that's a blessing, that really is a blessing, I am so enriched personally by all the good preaching that I'm able to hear in podcasts and, and other sources there. While that is a blessing, it can be twisted to become what I would call celebrity pastor syndrome. And when we look at these, these great pastors there, and, 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 and when certain people, they, they, they almost identify themselves as a follower of that pastor. Maybe you've heard it like this. You can fill in the names, but I'll give you some. Well, I listen to John MacArthur, or I listen to Tim Keller, or, or I listen to Alistair Begg, or, or, or maybe it's, you know, I watch, you know, Charles Stanley, or I watch Andy Stanley, or, or I watch, you know, David Jeremiah, or you fill in the blank there. All of these wonderful, gifted men who've enriched the church in large as a whole. But when we make ourselves followers of of one of those people, when when we use those as the basis of comparing what's happening in our local church with with what we're experiencing listening or watching them uh, online, you can see how it can become what I would call celebrity pastor syndrome, where we get caught up in that pastor comparison, that pastor envy, and pastor following with these pastors that we don't have any personal access to. This really, again, is another form of I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. So what's the way out of this carnal behavior? I mean, what is the way to to repent and and to think rightly about, about pastors at other churches, about pastors nationally? What is the right way to think about that? Well, God shows us the right way to think, the right way to act, the right attitudes to have. He shows us through what Paul writes to the Corinthians here in verses 5 through 17 of chapter 3. And he begins with, you know, my, my, my heading here would be how we should think about pastors. How should we think about our own pastor? How should we think about pastors at other churches in our community? How should we think about some of these national and, and worldwide Uh, names that we know of of pastors. Look at verse 5. What is Apollos, really? What is Paul? Servants. Servants through whom you came to believe. And each one of us, each one of these pastors, he's saying, is in a ministry the Lord gave us. Now, you need to understand Apollos and Paul are mentioned here because the biggest factions in the church in Corinth kind of formed around the two of them. But By no means does that list end with Apollos and Paul. 
You know, we, we could add to this list with, with names that comes to our mind. What is Dan? What is Chris? What is Sam? What is Adrian? What is John? We could, we could extend that list out when we, when we seek to apply this to ourselves. And look what he says here. What are they really? The Corinthians seem to believe that Apollos, Paul, and, and other teachers, that they had some sort of status. And we do that too. We, we, and the pastors that we prefer to listen to, we assign them varying degrees of status. And we seek to identify ourselves with them as if in some way we can share in their status or their status rubs off on us. And that's what was happening in Corinth. That's what happens today. But, but what are they really, Paul says? They are servants. They are, the, 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 the word there is literally those who wait tables. It's a lowly form of service there. What do we know about servants? particularly in biblical times. What is the role of a servant? The servant is to faithfully, faithfully fulfill, faithfully complete, faithfully perform the work entrusted to them by their master, the ministry that the Lord gave them. What happens if a servant forgets his identity? What happens if a servant forgets their role? What happens if a servant starts making their, what they're doing all about themselves and starts serving in a way that actually serves their own interests. Aren't they betraying their master? Aren't they not only forgetting their identity, but, but they're stealing their master's glory? And sadly, that happens today. That happens today when, when a man in any pulpit, when a man begins to think, you know, I built this church. The, the, the way this church is growing is because of me, or we contribute to that. When, when, when we engage in some of these behaviors that you'd never use this term, but really are worshiping the pastor more than the master that the pastor serves. As servants, every pastor, every teacher serves, notice what Paul says, in the ministry the Lord gave them. No true pastor, no true minister serves in a ministry role that he gained by his own ambition and giftedness. Uh, you know, th- that, that kind of thinking leads to becoming prideful, le- leads to a, a big ego. Re- the reality is, Paul says, each of us serve in the ministry the Lord gave us. He's the one who makes the specific ministry assignments. He's the one who says to one pastor, you are going to serve in a small country church, and another pastor, you are going to serve in a large city church, and everything in between. If they're true servants of Christ, Christ is the one who makes their assignments. So there's no place for pride. There's no place for, I got myself here. I built myself up into this position. There's no place for envy or jealousy. Now in verse 6, Paul gives us just to make it more even, even easier for us to see, he uses a farming analogy. And, 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 you know, many of or very few of us probably have much to do with farms anymore, but I think we can relate to this, this analogy. In verses 6 and 7, he writes, I planted, Apollos watered, but God caused it to grow. So neither the one who plants counts for anything nor the one who waters, but God causes the growth. So what was Paul's role in this farming analogy? He's the planter. He's the one who comes along where nothing is growing yet to a community where there's no church, nobody worshiping Christ. He plants the seeds of the gospel by his evangelistic preaching, and as they spring up, he, he, he founds a church. 
But that's his role, and that's really his ministry is limited to that role. And he knows that after him are going to come those who, pl- who water. Apollos was a waterer. What are waters? They are those who, who continue the ministry that has been founded in a church with, with ongoing teaching, with ongoing discipling. And that's what Apollos apparently did in Corinth after Paul left. Now, here's the thing. The work of one without the other it, it would be useless. You know, if, if a church planner came and, and got a church started, but there was no one to follow and help that church with additional teaching grow up and, and go into discipleship, that church is going to die. And, and someone who comes in and has gifts of teaching and discipleship, but, but, is, but there's nothing been planted, there's going to be nothing to water there either. These, these are not competing roles, Paul is saying. Their ministries, though independent and even at different times, are complementary. They contribute to the same goal of raising up a crop. So when we heap praise on a particular pastor in one particular season in the life of our church, or when we make a celebrity out of some local or nationally known pastor, you know, we're really showing how nearsighted we are. When we make a a hero out of a planter or a waterer, you know, Paul says they're nothing by themselves. And, and we've lost sight not only of the respective roles and the fact that God assigned the roles, we've lost sight, see it in the text there, it's God who causes the growth. So even the most gifted planner, the most gifted evangelist, even the most gifted waterer, the gifted, most gifted preacher and discipler cannot by himself cause spiritual growth. It is God who works through them causing the spiritual growth. So if anyone should be praised for the spiritual fruit in the life of a church, it should be God. He's the absolute cause for any and every aspect of spiritual growth in a church. Verse 8, the one who plants and the one who waters work as one, but each one will receive his reward according to his work. They, They work as one, even though they may be there at different times with different gifts and different assignments. They all contribute, like the NIV says, to the same purpose. So Paul knew that, that, that he and Apollos, they weren't competitors. They, they shared a common purpose, producing a harvest of spiritual fruit in Corinth. So why would they think of themselves as, as competing with each other? Let me ask you, let me just make this real personal. Do you have that same perspective when you think about the different pastors and churches in our community? Or do you, even if you wouldn't admit this, do you deep down, do you believe that Central and Harvest and High Point and Hope and Bellevue and you fill in the blank and their pastors, they're really competitors. They're, 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 they're competing against each other. Or do you see them, like Paul says here, as working as one, as all having the same purpose? Well, what does the text tell you about the way to look at other churches in this community and the other pastors in those churches? And note that just as God is the one who who assigns different pastors to their different servant roles, God is also the judge of the faithfulness of any particular pastor's uh, service. I mean, we tend to look at at our church and churches around us, and we tend to evaluate ministry by by worldly signs of success. How many people are coming? What are they building? What kind of programs are they creating there? But Paul writes that every faithful servant will receive his reward not 
necessarily from visible results that we can see, but according to His work, according to His labor. Now, Paul's going to explain his concept of rewards more fully in verses 12 through 17, but his point here is that what pleases God is a particular servant's faithfulness, even if we don't see worldly results. Think about a missionary who goes to Japan, a very pagan culture, versus a missionary who goes to a largely Christianized culture, a missionary who goes to a a Muslim culture versus a missionary who is in a very Christianized culture. Their visible results may be very different. Does one impress God more than the other because they get more visible results? No, God is concerned with how they work, with that they are faithful to where He has assigned them in the work that He has given them to do. Some churches, you go to churches in the northeast or in the northwest, the soil is much harder there than it is here in the Bible Belt in the south. How do we measure results? How do we measure fruitfulness? by faithfulness, Paul says here. Well, Paul brings the farming analogy to a close in verse 9. We are co-workers belonging to God. You are God's field, God's building. Co-workers, I love this word. Paul uses it throughout his pastoral letters. He uses it to describe how differently gifted pastors and leaders, differently gifted servants of Christ work cooperatively in the service of the gospel. Paul knows that despite what the Corinthians think, he and Apollos, they're not competitors. They are co-workers. Dan Worthman and Sam Shaw and Chris Conley and Kenneth Vaughn and Steve Gaines and you fill in the blanks, they are not competitors. They are co-workers. Central and High Point and Harvest and The Orchard and Bellevue, and again, you fill in the blank. They are not separate fields. Do you notice here field is singular? We are all one field. We are all serving in one field. And it's not a football field where we're all competing with each other. It's an agricultural field where all of us are working cooperatively together to produce a great harvest. Is that the way you look at churches around us in our community and their pastors and leaders? Well, Paul changes the metaphor at the end of verse 9 from the field to a building. In other words, from from the farm to the construction site. Maybe some of you work in construction and you can relate to this metaphor. And this new metaphor uh, turns us from how we should think about pastors to how pastors and leaders should think about their ministry. So he speaks not only to our perception of pastors, he speaks to pastor, leader, How do you think about what you're doing where God has planted you, where God has assigned you? Look at verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, but someone else builds on it, and each one must be careful how he builds. Paul, again, was the planner, but in this this metaphor, he's he's the He's the wise architect that comes in and lays the initial foundation, and we know from chapter 1 and 2 what that foundation it is. It's the gospel message of how God saves us from our sin, from judgment, through Jesus Christ's substitutionary sacrifice on the cross, the gospel. That That is what he planted. That is the foundation that he built and established every church on. But he says, someone else came after I left and built on that foundation, Apollos and others came along after Paul, and and by their teaching and their discipling, what did they do? They erected, they raised the walls 
of the church. And Paul's not complaining about this. This is not something that he regrets. He knows his role in building churches was that initial work of laying the foundation. He knew other people needed to come along and built up upon what he established. I, I mean, you lay a foundation and you don't raise the walls or put a roof on it. It's a useless building. And so he knew that a, or he knew that a foundation without any further construction is pointless, that the church needed all these different men that God brought in his, his wise assignments to build up the church with their skills. And that's just as true, by the way, of Central Church as it is of the Corinthian church. No pastor here at any time in Central's history can take credit for, for building the church, for, for making the church what it is. Really, the reality here is God uses many different people over many different periods and seasons of of Central's history with many different gifts to accomplish the construction. And by the way, that construction is ongoing, and it continues until Christ returns. Now, notice that Paul warns here. He warns pastors. He warns leaders that they must be careful how they build. It is possible, we're going to see, that you, you can come in where there is a foundation of the gospel, and you can build on that structure of the foundation in a way that weakens the building, that, that, that really subjects the, the building to the threat that it could collapse. And that is an ever-present danger today. That's what Paul seems to be concerned about is happening in Corinth. Look at verse 13. No one can lay any foundation other than what was being laid, which is Jesus Christ. But we've seen in chapters 1 and 2, that's, that's what was happening. There were some there in that, that, that community of Corinth that wanted to alter the foundation. Yeah, the gospel is fine, Paul, but we need to make, you know, our message acceptable to the world. We, we need to find out what our world thinks of as wise, and that's how we need to structure our message. So we, we need to, you know, the, those hard parts of the gospel about sin and everything, Paul, don't go there. Don't go there. We need to give we need to give worldly wisdom was really the message coming from many in Corinth. And Paul warns here that to try and alter the core message of a Christian church to focus on anything other than the gospel message of salvation through Jesus Christ is to erode the foundation, to weaken the building, and bring about its eventual implosion. Now, even when the foundation of a church is clearly the gospel, Paul says, there is still the very real danger that pastors and leaders may build on that foundation with inferior materials. Look at verse 12. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, do you see in that list, do you see a declining value of these building materials? I mean, gold and silver and precious stones, if you read through the Old Testament, those were used in building a temple. But, but sometimes gold and silver and, and, and precious stones is too costly, or it's not easily obtainable. You really would have to work and wait for that. It's far easier if you want to get a building up fast to build with wood and hay and straw. That's cheaper. That's more readily available. And that analogy fits to the church in our culture today. It is an ever-present temptation to build a church with whatever works fast, with whatever methodology, with whatever techniques we think will, will attract people, will work fast. 
And for a while, you know what? When you build a church like that, it seems like, like maybe something is being built. The, the walls seem to go up fast. People seem to be coming in the doors. A lot of activities may seem to be happening. But here's the question that any builder, any pastor, any leader needs to ask. Will it last? Will it last? Don Carson puts it this way. If a church is being built with large portions of charm, personality, easy oratory, positive thinking, managerial skills, powerful and emotional experiences, and people smarts, but without the repeated, passionate, spirit-appointed proclamation of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, we may be winning more adherents than converts. We may be bringing people in the doors with that kind of building on wood and hay and straw but not saving them, not producing true followers of Jesus Christ. The greatest danger of building a church with inferior materials has to do with what will be left when Jesus returns. Look at verses 13 and 14. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each builder's work will be plainly seen, for the day will make it clear because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what kind of work each has done. What is he talking about here? The day. That is an Old Testament and New Testament concept. It's it's that phrase that sums up the, the truth that Jesus Christ is returning. Peter writes about this in 2 Peter when he says, on that day, God will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away in flames. And Paul is saying this fiery day will test what kind of work has been done in building up a church. It will expose whether all that has gone on in the name of ministry has lasting value, is made of gold and silver and precious stones, or whether it's made of wood and hay and straw. And of course, when you think about fire, especially a large fire, does wood and hay or straw survive a fire? No, they are incinerated. Gold and silver and precious stones will pass through the fire. And Paul's point here is that the kind of churches we are building now, they will eventually be seen for what they really are made of when Jesus Christ returns. And a church that is built with the wood and hay and straw of entertainment and comfort and easy assurance and cheap grace and cultural acceptance will have nothing to show for its efforts when Jesus Christ returns, because all of that will be burned up. None of it will survive the Lord's testing, revealing fire. Only the gold and the silver and the precious stones of great commission and great commandment ministry will pass through the fire. Now, if we build with these imperishable materials, if we we do what is costly, what may take longer, what, 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 what seems to be harder, there is a reward, Paul says in, first Corinthians, in verse 14. If what someone has built survives, built of gold and silver and precious stones, he will receive a reward. Now, that word reward, that may set off alarms in some of your, you know, your, your minds. Um, our salvation is entirely by grace. We don't earn it. We can never repay it. It's not about anything that we merit. And yet the Bible says, having been saved, the Bible says here and elsewhere that what we build will be evaluated for its spiritual quality. 
God is evaluating our service, and that Jesus will reward us in heaven. He will reward us by giving us work in heaven commensurate with how we have served Him on this earth. Those who serve faithfully where He has assigned them on this earth, and this is true of all of us, will receive even greater positions of service, greater roles in His kingdom. But if we build with inferior perishable materials, we will suffer loss. That's verse 15. If someone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as through fire. What is Paul telling us here? He's telling us that it is possible to build a church with such shoddy materials, wood, hay, and straw, that at the last day, it'll all be burned up, and we'll have nothing to show for our efforts. And Paul warns that he will suffer loss. The, the pastor, the church leader who, who does that, who takes what is easy, who takes what seems to, to work fast rather than what is truly biblical, he will suffer loss. That's not the loss of salvation because salvation was by grace, not works. But it is the loss of a reward. It is the loss of grief that one experiences by, by, by seeing everything that one has labored for incinerated, burn up, and nothing left. The grief, the regret that comes from that. Notice what he says. He, again, he's talking about pastors and leaders. He himself will be saved, but only as through fire. The picture there, can you imagine this entire building engulfed with a huge inferno? And those who are building the building are trapped inside. They barely make it out. They're covered with, with ash. They're smelling like smoke. They're seeing everything that they ever labored for burn up in front of them. That's the image there. What is Paul saying here? Clearly, God is teaching us through Paul that he cares about his church. And so, because he cares about his church, he holds its leaders accountable. He holds pastors and church leaders accountable for how they build his church and with what materials that they use. Finally, how should we all think about the church? Paul goes from how we should think about pastors to how pastors should think about their ministry. And now he concludes in verses 16 and 17 with how we should all think about the church, the big C church and our small C local congregation sense of church. Verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Ah, now we see this building project, what it's really building. It's building God's temple. The temple in the Old Testament, the place where God manifested His presence to His people. Paul says that's what God is doing in building His church. He is building a place where, where He is present through His Spirit. And by the way, this is not written to individual people. This is you, second person, plural. This is to all of us. So if you are part of the body of Christ, if you are part of the church, if you are part of the building, if you are part of the temple, that is central church, God is present among us by His Spirit. And what's He saying here? Again, God cares about His church. He loves His church. He jealously guards it as a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. So when Paul reaches the climax of his teaching here in verse 17, Again, he's not just talking to pastors and leaders anymore. He's speaking to all of you, to all of us, to all of us who make up the church. Look at verse 17. If someone destroys God's temple, 
God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Now, certainly pastors and leaders can have a destructive effect upon a church if they build with shoddy materials, if they, if they engage in, in unbiblical ministry and behavior. But, but Paul's going beyond that. He's saying that every one of us, every day, every week, certainly every Sunday, we are either building up the church or we are tearing down the church in our attitudes and our words and our actions. There are many ways to destroy God's temple. Certainly, we destroy God's temple by teaching, by promoting heresy, but, but, but so will pride and self-promotion and the envy that leads to factions in a church. That will destroy a church. And so will gossip. So will murmuring, complaining. So will bitterness. So will unforgiveness destroy a church, tear down a church. And Paul's ends here with a warning. If someone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Because God lives in his church by his spirit, he takes it very seriously when his temple, his church, is corrupted or harmed, whether it's by factionalism or division or bitterness or unforgiveness. God takes that very seriously And it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's why, brothers and sisters, we always want to be a church that works through conflict, that pursues reconciliation. You know, my son and his new wife were here last weekend. They've been married four weeks, and he was telling me, yeah, we've been married four weeks, and we haven't had a significant argument yet. What do you say to that after you've been married a few years? Well, that's good, son. I'm really happy for you. What I wanted to say is, but you know what? It's coming. It's coming. And what I wish for you is not the absence of conflict in your marriage. What I wish for you is following Christ in the way he wants to lead you through that conflict. Because I know that God will actually strengthen your marriage by the way he leads you through conflict if you follow him. And the same is true of us as a church. The measure is not whether we have conflict in a church. In fact, in our our church leadership course, one of the things we've been realizing in the material that we work through is that every church, at every time, there's some at least a low level of conflict or the potential of conflict springing up. It is more about how we go through the conflict And God wants us to be a church that works through conflict, that pursues reconciliation. That's part of what it means to build with gold and silver and precious stones. And I hope and I pray that's what each of you want to be part of too. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, the fact that you would reveal who you are, that you would be present to us, by your incarnate Son, Jesus. That is enough to blow us away. But this truth now, here in other places, that you now dwell in us, among us, by your Holy Spirit, that this is, as we come together, your temple. That awes us. That humbles us. And Lord, we want to be people who, who are, are building up and not tearing down. And so convict us, Lord, of the attitudes and the words and the actions that tear down and by your Spirit empower us, Lord, 
to have the attitudes, to speak the words, to do the actions that build up. We pray this, that your glorious temple would be built here among us, that it would radiate your glory, that it would radiate the gospel to all the world around us. In Jesus' name we pray.